Well, there has been a lot of talk about what is happening in Victoria, spending by the sergeant at arms, by the clerk. And later on in this program, we're going to talk to Mike Smith. He has written his latest column on this, uh, taking a look at Daryl Pleckis, the speaker, uh, acting like a double agent to get to the point where we are today. But let's focus first on some of the items on that list and some of the things that were able to be expensed to the taxpayers of British Columbia. And Chris Sims is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us on the line now. Chris, great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Uh, What is your thought on this? I mean, I can imagine uh, some of your response, but now that we're learning more, getting the actual list of things that were expensed and getting a better idea of the scope of the spending. It's a staggering list of items. Uh, there's the, the massive report, of course, that was put out by Speaker Plekis earlier this week, and I think that really has a lot of people raising their eyebrows. And they keep on saying things like they don't think that it stops here, or this is all the information they could find so far. And so with that in mind, that's why we think there needs to be a full independent audit of the B.C. legislature, by somebody who's never darkened the door of the building. We want somebody from the outside completely. Um, It has nothing to do at all with uh, how good things have gone here so far as far as audits go. It has to do with confidence of the British Columbian people and the perception that some people are getting now. And I think the perception here matters a lot. So if we bring in somebody from the outside completely, like uh, Sheila Frazier, uh, Bonnie Lissick from Ontario, their Auditor General there, I think that would help a lot of people start to regain their confidence in the way things are running there in Victoria. But uh, the list of items there is shocking. Uh, I know that the wood splitter and the trailer have gotten a lot of attention, but if you read the Plekis report and start flipping through some of these things, there's things like, you know, years-long magazine subscriptions that are based out of Palm Springs. I mean, and it sounds little, But it matters, and they all add up to a staggering amount of money. And I think that's what really starts to bother people. It's the idea that it seems like every little thing that is purchased, we get to buy it for them. It's the taxpayers paying for it. And that is what changed things, hopefully, in Ottawa when David Dingwall, of course, famously said, I'm entitled to my entitlements. That's because it wasn't some multi-million dollar deal or something that he was overseeing. He expensed a pack of gum that was worth about 50 cents or so. And I think that's what really got to people because they can picture themselves standing at a gas station, buying a pack of gum and turning around to the person behind them in line and saying, hey, you buy this for me. Well, I, and I saw someone tweet out, and it was funny if it wasn't so sad, but they tweeted out, don't you yearn for the days when all what we were dealing with $16 orange juice? Yes, and to put a point on that, uh, that was where a minister was traveling overseas and in a situation where they basically don't leave their hotel room. They go to a conference, they stay in the hotel, they eat in their hotel, and then they come home. And one of those hotels happened to have, yes, $16 glasses of orange juice. And that's not fun. And, of course, that's what people latch on to because they can, they can picture it. And it's audacious. The notion of billing somebody for something like that, it, that's where you really start getting into things like culture and entitlement. And if you, I encourage everybody listening, if you haven't had time yet, take the weekend, if you can, stomach it, and open up the Plexus Report. It's 76 pages long, but it's very clearly written. 
And looking at the report too, and like you said, it's it's it might be little things. It might be gum that costs fifty cents. But even looking at it, and you're right, the the wood splitter and that are getting a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, but for me, looking down the list, looking at year after year souvenirs that yep. are purchased, bottle openers, cards, a diary for seventy seven dollars, a whiskey cake, and some books for fifty eight dollars. Um, the another book, uh, noise ha- canceling headphones that were needed for air travel at $505. Uh, yes. These are the things I think that make people so angry as if to say, we understand you have a job and that job it, it inquire, it requires you to travel and requires you to go places. It does not require you to buy souvenirs on the public's dime. Over and over again. And I think some people might think, oh, they took uh, one trip or they expensed one trip to the UK. No, they went frequently. If you take a look at the documents, they jetted over to London to buy fancy clothes and they went all over the place. They took train trips where they upgraded to first class. You're right. One of them bought noise canceling headphones at about $500 for the flight over. You know, it's, it just seems, seems to stack up and add up over and over again. And so it seems inevitable if you start seeing uh, expense uh, forms for the flight, then you start seeing inevitably stops at the gift shop and not just one stop, repeated stops. So much so that we can even tell that they didn't bring their own bag. They had to buy their five cent bag, you know, details like that. Over and over again, year over year, I think that's where British Columbians really start getting fed up because a lot of British Columbians, uh, you know, they dream about going to London maybe once in their lives and saving up for it and knowing what a trip of a lifetime that would be and the notion that people can just drop everything and go repeatedly to go buy some robes and take a train trip up to Scotland is uh, pretty galling. And uh, $1,035 on cufflinks, mugs, pens, and other trinkets. Right. And it just keeps adding up. And that's where you start wondering, guys, like, when does it cross your mind that maybe you should just foot this bill yourself? What, where does that line cross over? And I think that's where people have really start, started to lose their confidence of if you start expensing everything all the time, your day-to-day life and your fancy stuff, um, that's when people really want answers. And so this can't just stop with this report and kind of slide to a halt. The, the culture that enabled um, this report to be written, I'll put it that way, uh, that needs to change. Uh, do you think it will change? Because some of the conversations as well have been, and I get that, that nobody wants to be a full-time auditor and that there needs to be a certain leap of faith, a certain uh, honesty that if you are in this position where you do get to expense things and, and you can, that you only expense uh, what most people would deem reasonable and many things on this list are not. How do you think that will change or how can we make that change? We think that the good start would be to make, uh, and this isn't about them personally, it's about their, the positions. So the position of the staff of things like the legislature, like the speaker, the sergeant at arms, and the clerk, that needs to become subject to freedom of information. Now, this may sound wonky, but your listeners may not know, you can do a freedom of information request, or as journalists call them, FOIPs, uh, on places like, you know, BC Ferries, BC Hydro, uh, an MLA, their staff, things like that. And that's where you request expenses or you request emails. And MLAs post their expenses 
online. I think it's every three months or so, quarterly. So we, we can see them. If you really want to go look at ferry receipts for MLAs, you can. That's important because we paid for it. The three staff and the staff underneath them, things like Speaker, Sergeant at Arms, and Clerk, aren't subject to freedom of information. So even if we heard something was going on, we couldn't put in a freedom of information request. The only reason why we know this is because of the speaker report. So a good first step is making those positions foipable, as journalists would say. Interestingly, if you look online uh, overseas, ironically in London, they had an issue with this when they had people uh, spending too much money on fancy speaker robes and fancy outfits. And they then had to become subject to freedom information. Which is, which is a bit sad that we need to go that route to keep people accountable or to keep people in check. But I think you're right. If that's what's needed, then that change needs to happen. The notion where it's floating in the back of your head. And if you get comfortable thinking, I'm just used to doing this. This is just business as usual. People can get lulled into a sense of these are my entitlements and I'm just going to keep buying these things. And again, we still haven't heard from these people. I really want to hear from these three people that have been talked about so much, especially the two in the report. I want to see them at the committee. I want to see them. Maybe, maybe they can explain all of this. If they can, great. Let's hear it. But going forward, if you have that in the back of your mind, that what you're about to buy could wind up on the front page of the Vancouver Sun or become a subject of a talk radio interview, it may give you pause because it might be posted on the internet. But if you don't have that oversight, then really what's checking you? Exactly. All right. Well, we are going to talk more about this uh, with Mike Smith later in the program. But Chris Sims, thank you again so much uh, for coming on. Great to chat with you again. Likewise. Take care. Well, it is one of the stories that has been dominating news headlines for the past few days. That's likely not going to change anytime soon. Talking about what's happening in the legislature. Uh, Let's bring in Mike Smith, Vancouver Province columnist, also a host here on CKNW. Good morning, Mike. Hi, good morning, Jill. Good morning. Just before we uh, get into your latest column in this, you know, I got to tell you, Mike, I was listening to the news quiz yesterday. I can't believe you didn't give that guy wood chipper. <laughs> <laughs> that was hardcore. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, the question was, what was the famous uh, 13, you know, th- I guess the I guess the wood splitter was what, 3,900 bucks? And then it was another, uh, yes. ten, it was another 10 grand for the uh, trailer. So the question was... Um, what was the $3,000 item? And he said, wood chipper. <laughs> I, I couldn't accept it. It was like a wood chipper is different from is. a wood splitter. That is true. That Let's is true. It. Yes, it is different. But the poor yeah. guy, I felt he was so close with wood chipper. But What are they going to do with the wood splitter? This is an interesting thing now because John Horgan said the other day that they should give it to charity. I've heard some other people suggest that maybe you should sell it put it up on eBay, put the money back into the provincial treasury, or uh, had a discussion yesterday with people saying, why don't, you, why don't you set up a little wood lot down at the legislature and just make it, this is the people's wood splitter now. You can come down, you got some logs to split, come on down, use the people's wood splitter down at the ledge. So we'll see what happens to it. Right now it's just parked outside the building, getting rusty. <laughs> Good so, Lord. All yeah. right. Just uh, one of the many, many items on that yes. list. Uh, you've also written about the role that Daryl Plekis played, because I think that that's a very interesting mm. part of this as well, as well as what he had to do to get to the point that he could even write that 76-page report. 
Well, there's been some criticism of uh, Plekis and the way that he has conducted this uh, investigation, and certainly it's been extremely unorthodox what happened here. And like Christy Blatchford, for example, had a column the other day in the National Post where she said, well, if, if these trips, if these foreign junkets to the UK where these guys went over and buying designer suits and stuff, if it was so bad, why did Daryl Plekis go on these trips himself? And Plekis was asked that the other day in his first comments on this, and he said, look, I... I had I was basically like an undercover agent uh, watching these guys ring up all these charges on these junkets. And if I had raised the flag at the first opportunity that I saw something wrong, uh, it would have all shut down. So it would have blown his cover. So basically he said that he kind of went along to get along on this thing, uh, went on these trips, silently observing the stuff that he saw around him, clearly documenting it and then cross-checking it with the expense accounts that were filed later. And that's how he was able to kind of blow the lid off of this thing. So very unorthodox to be sure. We've never seen a report like this at the BC legislature. We've never seen a speaker do something like this. Um, But it was very unusual, very strange. There has been some criticism, Jill, that maybe the way that this has gone about uh, maybe some the case doesn't stand up in court, or it exposes the province to uh, the legislature or Plekis to some accusations that due process was not followed, or these guys were kind of victims of entrapment. So we'll see what happens if if it ever gets to criminal charges, if it gets that far. I'm not certain it's going to end up in criminal charges, but I think for the most part, the public is happy that this has been exposed. And people are angry about it. And it's been a whirlwind story this week. New developments every day. And like you said, there'll be more going forward. Well, and and looking at that list, too, when we were chatting earlier this morning uh, with the Taxpayers Federation, uh, and like you said, even if it's not criminal and it doesn't go down that road, the fact that we're now seeing these expenses, because that's not in question, is it? The fact that, that the, the expenses were put through, uh, the taxpayers are paid the bills for these things. It, now, moving forward, I, I would imagine one of the big questions is, uh, how do we bring this spending into control or how do we right. come up with some 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 rule book uh, that the public doesn't have to buy you your cufflinks. Yeah, I think one of the problems here is a few years ago, there have been, this is kind of stuff has flared up uh, in the past, and there have been calls to clean up spending at the legislature, and there were reforms that were put in place. One of the things that was done, for example, was that MLAs were required to release detailed receipts of their spending on their expense accounts, which is fine, because I, I think that's actually a great move that a lot of their other jurisdictions have done, because it removes the temptation to misspend the public's money when you know that the receipt is going to be posted online and anyone will be able to look at it. The problem is they excluded these senior officers of the legislature. They were not included in that requirement. So the temptation to spend like this was never removed from them. And there was clearly kind of a culture of entitlement, as they say, at the legislature that's been going on for a long time. And the only way it was going to be exposed, because this was not covered by freedom of information, there was no disclosure, the only way it was going to come out is if you had a guy like Plekis, who was an independent speaker, 
clearly kind of a, a maverick in his outlook, uh, not willing to overrule the advice he was getting because the, the, the legal advice he was getting behind the scenes was shut up, stop talking, do not disclose this stuff. And he said, no, I am going to disclose it. And whether it ends up in criminal charges, I don't think it will, because a lot of this, a lot of this stuff was approved. I mean, almost all of it was approved in this report. So I don't know how that ends up in criminal charges. There may be other stuff we don't know, though, because one of the things that Plekis and Alan Mullen have said is there's more. There is stuff that they discovered or they knew about that they did not include in that report that came out Monday because they did not want to um, you know, upset the police investigation or compromise the police investigation that's going on. So there may be more. Yeah. There uh, will be more. There will be, for sure. Do we know then when, did, has Plekis said exactly when he first uh, was made aware of this or when he first started to, to, to see what he deemed as uh, suspicious or, or inappropriate expenses and when he first started becoming that double agent? Yeah, he said it was basically from day one. He said the, the first day that he went into the Speaker's office at the legislature after he was sworn in, he was uh, shown the liquor cabinet, and he looked in these multiple liquor cabinets, as he described it, and, and saw this high-end booze, and he thought that was strange. And then as he went on these foreign junkets with these officials, he began to notice that there was very little work being done on these trips, um, he noticed the spending that was going on, began to carefully document everything. And then clearly there was a whistleblower element to it as well. He said people started coming forward to him, notably a lot of people who have been fired from their jobs at the legislature, some of them, some of them complaining to Plekis privately that they felt that they were fired because they were asking questions about this kind of misspending. Check out the story in the Vancouver Sun today by reporter Laurie Culbert, who interviewed Alan Mullen, Plekis's chief of staff, who said there's up to 20 people at the legislature who were fired, they, or they say they were fired, because they questioned, uh, in his words, corruption and uh, misspending of public funds. So that's another element to this going forward, is there, there's not only the uh, forensic audit that's going to be done, but there's also a so-called workplace review that will look at these firings. So that's just another sort of element and thread of this that's going to produce more uh, revelations in the days ahead here. And if nothing else, do you think this will lead to changes as far as these positions will be uh, subject to FOI requests or there will be more scrutiny on the spending in the future? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's all parties have basically said that we need reforms at the legislature now to deal with this, to prevent it from happening again. And it's kind of a no-brainer that what you have to do is extend uh, freedom of information laws to cover these officials after they were excluded in the past. You know, they often say that the best disinfectant is sunshine. You got to you got to open up the window and, and shine the light on this. And once that is happening and, and officials know that any spending they do will be automatically disclosed and scrutinized. It, it really takes away, I think, 99% of the temptation to, to do this type of spending. So I think that will certainly absolutely be done. Now, another thing, though, to watch for this week, Jill, is that the Legislative Assembly Management Committee at the legislature gave Craig James and Gary Lenz until February 1st, which is this Friday, to respond to the allegations in the report. Last night, there were the first comments from Craig James to uh, Czech News in Victoria. They got him at his home. 
and he said that he has been busy with his lawyer uh, putting together a detailed response to the report that came out this week, and he expects to file that response by the deadline this Friday. So another big element to this story that you will very likely see this week um, will be the response from Gary Lenz and Craig James, almost certainly saying that they did nothing wrong and that everything they did was formally approved by the legislature and they haven't been treated fairly. That's coming this week, probably. And so, Moron, because all we've heard at this point is was the statement they released, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they put out a written statement saying that uh, the allegations in the report are false. Um, they continue to say they've, that they're innocent and they want to be exonerated. Now, remember, there, there was a line in the report from Plekis that one of the, the more, most troubling elements of this is all the stuff was approved. Right. So um, that's certainly what they're going to argue. I mean, pe- they, they will certainly argue that uh, these, these res- uh, expenses were allowed these expenses were documented and they were approved and people may be upset about it, but they're going to say that they just followed the rules that were laid down. Um, and that's, I think that's certainly going to be their defense uh, on these things. Now, if it, get, if it gets further down in criminal charges, I think, you know, you may see their lawyers start to really question the, the investigated uh, investigative steps that were done here by the speaker's office. That's down the road, but the most immediate response will certainly be them saying that uh, they didn't break any rules. <clears throat> All right. So, well, we will wait and uh, hear those responses coming up yep. in the next few days. Mike, thank you so much. Anytime, Jill. Well, transportation is often a big topic of discussion in Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, what have you. Uh, it seems like every time I turned on the radio this week, though, if it wasn't talk of the legislature and the, the spending scandal, it was talk of transportation. In particular, it was talk of the SkyTrain extension, not only to Arbutus, but all the way to UBC. Uh, let's bring in now, though, Mike Little, who is the District of North Vancouver Mayor. Uh, mayor Little, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, There has been so much talk about this line. Uh, Has it led to mayors like yourself or mayors outside of the Vancouver area feeling a bit left out of the discussion? Well, I certainly think that uh, uh, we've articulated that there's uh, a proven case for a SkyTrain uh, route out to uh, UBC. Our concern is that by putting the line underground uh, throughout the course of the route, the costs escalate so much so that you really have to back burner all of the other regional priorities in order to be able to afford to do it. And is, is that, do you think, being talked about enough? Or Because at, at this point, I know that there has been talk of the line, the fact that it will be an extremely expensive line, but it, it hasn't really been. I don't know that the discussion has really been about at the expense of what else. Yeah, and that's certainly an emerging discussion uh, because, as I said, there's been a lot of support for connecting up UBC into the system uh, properly. But uh, this is an area that already has uh, a very high level of service to it, which is why there is a proven case for uh, for connecting them into the SkyTrain system. Uh, but the, the issue that we're concerned about is that the, the incremental cost to go from an elevated line to potentially an entirely underground line is very high. And that money doesn't actually move many more people out of their cars into, um, into the system. Uh, most of the people that would go into the system would go in as an elevated line uh, without uh, much of that extra cost. And that, that cost is really, the, that incremental cost is actually the, the thing that's uh, 
uh, I think, emboldening a lot of the regional mayors to speak up now at this point because we have been supportive of the connection to SkyTrain to UBC, but uh, uh, the, the, the extra costs are such that there's no way we'll be able to deal with congestion issues around the region for the next 15 years. And what do you think would be the priorities then looking outside or around the region? Uh, we'll start even from the District of North Van. What would you like to see as far as increased uh, trans- transit uh, options there? Well, certainly the North Shore has felt uh, a little left behind in terms of major infrastructure. Uh, you know, all of the um, uh, the highway widening that occurred uh, through uh, federal and provincial partnerships that brought the highway one widened highway one all the way out to the valley. Uh, it all stopped at the Cassiar connector, and so uh, onto the North Shore now. All of the traffic uh, comes to the North Shore and bottlenecks uh, just after the Cassiar connector. And uh, so we're we're seeing daily lineups of uh, six, seven kilometers, and if there's an accident, it goes up to 12 kilometers. Uh, you know, uh, one of our frustrations is uh, in the news media. You know, when you when when people present the uh, the morning daily lineup, as it were, it, it's so easy to say, well, it's backed up into the Burnaby Lake stretch. Well, what I'd love to hear is it's backed up 11 kilometers into the Burnaby Lake stretch. I think that would give people in the region a much better sense of, of what the daily lineups are like to and from the North Shore. Uh, we, if we're not the, the highest congestion concern in the region, we, we certainly are top one or two. Uh, and it, it is an interesting way of putting it because it's almost as though that I would think of that and also the Massey Tunnel lineups in the morning and in the afternoon. It's almost become the norm and, and nobody questions it. It's just expected that there's going to be that huge backup. Yeah. And then to see all of this capital move towards an area that doesn't have a congestion issue and uh, largely would be very well met by uh, an elevated SkyTrain line is extremely frustrating. And do you think that would the cost or have we got to the point of doing the studies that the cost between the elevated and the and the tunnel would be that much different? We do have to do a little bit of guesswork on that. The LRT uh, pro- uh, study that was just uh, a part of the study this last week uh, did not get into the SkyTrain costs. Uh, what we're going on is that uh, uh, at the the costs that were projected for the um, uh, the Fraser Highway extension, uh, so the cost per kilometer out there, uh, it, it would mean if you had a similar sort of cost going out through the uh, to the UBC corridor, that would mean an elevated line would be about 2.8 billion dollars. Uh, and uh, my understanding is that a pro- potential uh, subway line would be north of six billion dollars. Right. So uh, a huge project, and like you said, likely coming, that, that, that doesn't leave a lot for other projects. No, and, and we're, we're looking for an extra billion dollars to, to potentially extend the south of Fraser corridor. Well, I got to tell you, you elevate the uh, SkyTrain line out to UBC and it would be a lot easier to find that money. Uh, but for other areas that are not currently well served, uh, we're sitting there contributing to the to the to TransLink at a very high level and not getting uh, rapid transit options. The North Shore specifically is an area that is identified as a regional growth st- uh, center, and it's the only one that doesn't have mass transit to it. Uh, and so, what would the solution be? Do you think when we talk about the lineups uh, every day at the, at the Cassiar, at the Second Arrows, uh, Lionsgate? I mean, short of building a third crossing, what would ease the traffic, or what would be the solution at this point? 
Well, we are proceeding, trying to get uh, beeline services up and running on the North Shore. I'm sure you've heard a little bit about that in the media. Uh, And uh, in phase three of the 10-year plan, uh, unfunded so far, but this could potentially be a source of funds. Unfunded so far, we have two additional beelines directed to the two bridge crossings to the North Shore. I think at the end of the day, though, we do need to talk about a fixed link to the North Shore. We haven't had a lane increase to the North Shore since 1963, and our population has more than doubled in that time. And so it's going to be a combination of uh, better utilization of the road space that we already have, but I think we have to talk about adding more road capacity as well. Uh, which is a huge discussion as well. Uh, with the with rapid transit, though, is it is one of the issues similar to the old Port Man? One of the reasons on that bridge uh, that they couldn't have rapid transit was it was always congested, so you couldn't have a bus schedule that you could stick to because you never quite knew how quick a bus could get over the bridge, or you couldn't stick to the schedule. Is is that similar to what you're seeing uh, to and from the North Shore? Uh, it would certainly be be a similar situation. The backup, particularly when you come north uh, northbound, is off the bridge deck. It's on the north side of the bridge deck. And so, uh, yeah, you, you couldn't even use the queue jumpers to get a beeline into that um, uh, and, and not have to still wait crossing the bridge deck. So that's why I think that it's a combination of both increased service and also uh, a fixed link connection to the North Shore. And and there's lots of alternatives there. There are ways you could build a fixed link um, that is more of an industrial road and take all of the heavy truck traffic off of the bridge deck and move it onto an industrial route. Or you could do a bus rabbit transit uh, uh, route as well uh, off of that and just separate some of the traffic. Uh, It doesn't have to be that there's entirely separate infrastructure somewhere else across the North Shore. It could be just an addition to what's currently at the Iron Workers Corridor there. And so adding to it, uh, would it be beside the Iron Workers or where would it actually go? Well, we're looking to uh, the creative minds in our engineering departments to come up with uh, some potential solutions. First, just to review what the, the two bridge decks there can can handle, because we do have a rail bridge immediately next to uh, the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. But uh, uh, I think it's one of those situations where we have to put everything on the table, uh, particularly as uh, I know the federal liberal government is committed to the Kinder Morgan project, uh, I, you know, they're, they're going to have to do some upgrades to those bridges because that will be the corridor for a lot of that work. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, Mike Little, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you coming on the show. Pleasure to speak with you. Being connected can be an expectation, but it can also be a challenge to not be over-connected to the point where it could be negative for our health. Let's talk now with psychologist Dr. Ratem Ragev, the Director of Relationship, a relationship counseling center in Vancouver. Dr. Ragev, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jail. Good morning. Good morning to you uh, as well. Uh, how much of an issue is it, do you think, uh, as far as being connected and people feeling the need to always uh, be plugged in and linked in with other people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's quite an issue. I think it's quite a challenge in today's digital world. And I think that what you call being connected is what I sometimes call being disconnected. <laughs> Right, because you may be connected digitally, but that takes away or you're disconnected from a bunch of other things that uh, have been put perhaps on the back burner. Absolutely, absolutely. And we see this all the time. I mean, we, we live in a fast-paced 
world. There is an ocean of stimulants up there, and we feel the need to keep up, right, to always be available on, on our phones, on our gadgets, so much so that uh, it creates this facade of uh, perfection. We think that everything that we see out there, all the touched-up images, they're real. They're the real life. And then we feel this pressure to keep up. And so when we feel this pressure to keep up and produce our own beautiful photos of our perfect, perfect life, we tend to keep more to ourselves. We don't tell others and we don't share with others what is really going on with us because the truth is that life isn't perfect. <laughs> very, very true. Um, how how does it negatively impact our, our health, though, if we are so wrapped up in this and, like you said, always feeling like we need to be connected and comparing ourselves to what we see out there? I think it affects us in multiple ways. And I think the, one, of the, one of the things that I see most is it creates the sense of loneliness. And we know that loneliness is quite toxic for our health. We know that if we live in isolation, our health actually declines. So, and, and, and this is a problem globally. And we know that here in Vancouver, the Vancouver Foundation has put out a report, which they called Connect and Engage, and told us that about one quarter of us here in, in Vancouver and in BC are feeling isolated which which seems so counterproductive because on the one hand you would think that all of these devices and FaceTime and Skyping and all of these technological advances would actually make us more connected but it seems to have done the opposite. It does, doesn't it? And I want to say they're not inherently bad. You know, they they do connect us with people. It's great. I, you know, um Saturday mornings in my family and Sunday mornings in my family is a time when we FaceTime um, other family members who live in different parts of the world. So it can have that effect, but having it accessible all the time, having it on your person all the time, it kind of makes you sometimes want to go and, and check out, you know, what's, what's new out there, what's, what's happening. We have this need to keep up and it really keeps us away and leaves very little room for genuine one-on-one interactions, which really are not replaceable. Is there a point where you would advise people or a test somebody can do to see if they are in fact overloaded when it comes to being connected and doing uh, what you just mentioned, that that, act, that uh, behavior of, of always comparing to, to what you're seeing out there? I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with a test that is out there. I think um, it's kind of pervasive in our lives, I would say. And I would really recommend that people take some time to put that phone away, you know, and I say that to parents and I say that to partners and I say that to individuals, there really is no replacement to close relationships that are one-on-one. We know that they buffer us from ailments. We know that they keep us happy and they keep us healthy. They keep us living longer. Um, We know that for older people, we can see a link with memory. We can see that being connected in a good relationship protects our brains. It really is about the being able to count on each other to to be able to know that that person is there for me. And as much as we have a little bit of that in the digital digital sorry digital world, really there isn't a replacement to that in the one on one 
sort of uh, being available, being responsive, having that interaction, feeling really engaged with one another. That can't be replaced. No, definitely. And also, what about when you bring in as well, not only the, the, on the personal side, being so connected and such, but when you factor in people also uh, afraid to not check work email and to always be connected with work, even when you're not on the clock? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think it is a concern. It's a rising concern. It's very difficult because the expectations go up. So there is this expectation that will be accessible at all times. Uh, more and more we see that workplaces ask you to, yeah, check your email. And if you haven't responded, uh, you know, by a certain time, well, maybe you're uh, less committed at work. But I actually want to caution us against that. And I really want us to, as a society, want to empower us to actually connect with ourselves and with these people around us to make time for play, for rest, for nature, for those people who are around us in the real world so that we can recharge and rejuvenate and be that much more motivated and engaged and committed uh, to our work responsibilities. And I mean, is it something even as simple as realizing if you are on a walk or if you're at a concert, there there seems to be, we've gotten to the point where the immediate reaction is to pull the phone out to take a photo or to, to make a video of it. And rather than do that, just it, try and enjoy the experience in the moment. Absolutely. I think that's the perfect example of a very practical suggestion that all of us can follow. And I call it disconnect to connect. <laughs> So, you know, sometimes in session I will pull out my phone and I will show this little itty-bitty airplane sign on the phone and say, this is your opportunity to connect. Have some, allocate some time for that. You come home from work, you know, there are those two hours that for many of us are the crunch time for spending time with kids, getting dinner ready and putting kids to bed. Challenge yourself just an hour, half an hour, two hours, whatever you can. You know, put the gadgets away and see what happens when you're spending quality time with people around you. Which it sounds easy to do, but it, it can be, I think, when we are so uh, addicted to these devices, it can be very difficult. I think it's very, very challenging. It's very, very challenging, but I think the rewards are great. rewards are really great. I know for myself in the summer, I had this epiphany about where where should we travel uh, for summer. And I I knew that I wanted to take some time for vacation. And it kind of dawned on me that I want to go someplace and I love camping. I want to go someplace where there's no, um, there's no internet connection. And I said, what is it about that? Like, why would I do that? And I, and I kind of got to the conclusion that that makes me enjoy the moment so much more, be in just a, be mindful, as we say, of the moment and enjoy it for what it is. And I, and I think that when you're really present in the moment, maybe you don't need the, the, to take the perfect picture of it. Maybe it kind of, um, I think it sinks into your brain in a different way. Definitely. All right. Well, we have to leave it there, but uh, very good advice and uh, some food for thought there for people for sure. Uh, Dr. Regev, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. And I just want to say, if I may, that uh, uh, February is Psychology Month and there will be an Ask a Psychologist panel on February 7th. And I will be giving a talk 
on this topic on February 11th. Both are from 7 to 8.30 at the Vancouver Public Library at West Georgia. Come, it's free. All the psychology events in February are free, put up by BC Psychological Association. All right. Sounds great. Thank you great. so much. Thank you so much. That's